welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the writers, directors, producers, actors, costume designers, production designers, composers, um, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, authors, you name it, we talk to them all. And very excited about today's show, which we're going to get into in just a second here. But hey, obviously, if you're listening now, you're listening on AdrenalineRadio.com, where you can find us every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Or if you're bored and you're on your computer and you're on Facebook, you can go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page and you can watch a live stream of me sitting in a studio by myself, but with a pretty tablescape. And if you're watching today, yes, we have a lot of Oscar nominees, um, SAG Award winners, uh, Golden Globe winners, Guild winners displayed on the table. Plus, as a reminder, my pal Lisa Scottolini, her new book, Historical Fiction Eternal. Um, fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. Number four on the New York Times opening week. I can't wait for, for it to hit number one. I can't recommend it highly enough. And as I said last week about Lisa's book, filmmakers, please, you really read this book. You're going to want to option it to turn it into a film. But in terms of today's show, very excited. Coming back again for... I don't know. Pam, How do we know how many times this is that Steve's been here? Steve Alaric. Four? I think this is the fourth time. I think this is the fourth time. Steve Alaric is back with us. He has a new project called Variant. That uh, It's at the ground floor. It's scripted. He's going to be, he's written it. He's directing it. He's a producer. Uh, A big shout out to his co-producer, Marie Noel. I know Marie's listening. Hello, Marie. And I will see you later today. Um, But Steve is going to be with us because you can get in on the ground floor of the Indiegogo campaign for Variant. But it's a very timely and topical short film. Uh, So Steve's going to be joining us shortly to talk all about it and other projects that he has uh, going, and places where he's going to be popping up soon. Uh, And then, at the midpoint of the show, very happy to have with us, for the first time, writer-director Jesse Noah Klein. Jesse has a new film out, Like a House on Fire. Um, It's a beautiful film. There are some very Malick-esque visual qualities to it and structural qualities to it and I can't wait to talk to Jesse about that and it stars Sarah Sutherland daughter of Keith Kiefer granddaughter of Donald and the irony of it is that the uh, film's editor Richard uh, Komu he was the editor on American Haunting which starred Donald Sutherland so very cool. I love the, the the little connections when history comes together. But I can't wait to talk uh, to Jesse about this. So I'm trying. And so moving along here before Steve joins us, 
You know, SAG Awards. We've had the Golden Globes. We've had a lot of the Guild, all the Guild Awards, uh, all the Critics Association Awards. Last night was SAG. And as thrilled me to no end, the the outstanding performance for an ensemble in a motion picture went to the Trial of the Chicago 7. Trial of Chicago 7 is my big front runner right now for the Oscars and has been since the outpost was overlooked. Um, Still a travesty in my book. But the Trial of Chicago 7, a truly ensemble cast uh, in a pre-recorded acceptance, Frank Langella, who plays Judge Julius Hoffman, uh, in the film, gave a, an incredible uh, acceptance speech on behalf of the ensemble and the film. But I think this is going to be the one to watch now for Best Picture for Oscars. Uh, outstanding performance by a female, Viola Davis. Um, that was a surprise to a lot of people who thought Carrie Mulligan would walk away with it uh, for her turn in Promising Young Woman. Uh, out, outstanding performance by a male actor in a leading role. We knew it was coming. Chadwick Boseman for his performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, outstanding performance by a female actor in a supporting role. Went to Yoon, uh, Yoon Yujung from Minari. Here again, a lot of people expected Maria Bakalova from Borat's subsequent movie film to pick it up. Her colleagues did not think so. Outstanding performance by a male actor in a supporting role went to, and this was a really, this again, a very tough category with performances. You had Chadwick Boseman nominated for Five Bloods, Sasha Baron Cohen for Trial of Chicago 7, and again, I've said it before, I will say it again, this is the best performance of Sasha Baron Cohen's career. I love him in this role as Abby Hoffman, um, he is outstanding, but it is the best performance of his career. Uh, Jared Leto was nominated for The Little Things and Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami. But the winner, Daniel Kaluuya, Jodis, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, walked away with outstanding performance by a male actor in a supporting role in a motion picture. Television, not a lot of surprises in television was SAG. The Crown, Best Drama Series, uh, Schitt's Creek, Best Comedy Series, Julian Anderson picked up Best Female Actor in a Drama for The Crown, Jason Bateman, yay Jason, picked up Outstanding Performance by a Male in a Drama Series for his work in Ozark, um, Female Actor in a Comedy went to, of course, Catherine O'Hara in Schitt's Creek, a uh, male actor in a comedy went to Jason Sudeikis for Ted Lasso, which has come up from nowhere this year and has taken the world by storm. Uh, outstanding uh, female in a television movie or limited series. Again, the talk of the town, Anya Taylor-Joy for The Queen's Gambit. Uh, Mark Ruffalo very deservedly picked up the SAG Award for Outstanding Performance by a Male Actor in a Television Movie for I Know This Much is True. And uh, Stunt Ensemble. Every, the Oscars, please, Academy, you really need to add a stunt category because stunts are such a vital part 
of filmmaking anymore and storytelling. In this case, stunt ensemble in a motion picture went to Wonder Woman 1984. And stunt ensemble in a comedy or drama series went to Baby Yoda, The Mandalorian, as well it should. So now we're just going to count it down uh, to the Oscars. The end of the month, the Spirit Awards, are the, as usual, are the day before. Uh, we won't have all the hoopla this year down on the beach in Santa Monica. But uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, because there are quite a few differentials between the Spirit Awards. The past few years, they've been very, very in sync with the nominees with Oscar. This year, we've got a few breakouts with the Spirit Awards, namely number one, Best Supporting Actress, uh, Valerie Mahaffey for French Exit. And she is my pick. And for all of you, French Exit is now being released. There was a limited release for awards consideration. But now French Exit is available for everybody. And it is dry humor. It is hilarious. Um, Valerie Mahaffey steals every scene she's in. And I can't believe the Academy overlooked her. But Spirit Awards did not. So we'll see what happens at the end of the month. Oh, I see the light blinking, Pam. Oh, the light is blinking. Well, before we bring Steve Alaric on, a couple films I want to make mention of so I don't forget that you really need to have on your radar. Number one is Enhanced, written and directed by James Mark. It is a sci-fi film. It is outstanding it is available right now vod and digital it opened this past week um and it is there's some really fine effects in there there's some nice cinematography but it's the story and the characters the the premise that's really interesting about uh, mutant fugitives uh people that have been injected with with something with some kind of energy, gives them superhuman strength. Um, and, but then there is the essence of energy in the form of one person who wants everybody else. You have a, a military organization trying to round up all these people. You have this rogue energy, pure energy in human form, uh, going after everybody to absorb more energy. It's a, it comes to a very cool standoff. It's very well executed. Um, James Mark is, he brings all of his work in the stunt world to play here. His brother, Chris Mark, stars as our pure energy source as David. Uh, he is also a stuntman. But the real standout in Enhanced is Alana Bale, who plays the lead actress, the protagonist, Anna. She is outstanding. I recognized her immediately from her many episodes of work on The Good Witch, uh, playing uh, the character of Courtney, who was, of course, uh, the character, Bailey Madison's character of Grace. Courtney and Grace were besties. So, wonderful film, well worth a watch. Uh, the other film, it's opening this week, and we're going to talk more about it later, but it's held. Um, truly, uh, this is an example of one of those films that is co-directed by Chris Lofting and Travis Clough. 
Chris and Travis, I've been on their bandwagon since their very first feature film, The Gallows. To watch their growth as directors, as filmmakers, between The Gallows and Held, phenomenal. They have matured as storytellers. Um, The script is written by Jill Aubrey, who also stars in the film. But their directorial acumen, their visual acuity of how you use visuals to tell a story and the nuance and editing process. Um, I can't wait for you to hear. I spoke with Chris and Travis, and you'll be hearing that interview probably on BehindTheLensOnline.net because next week we're going to be hearing from Neil Berger talking about Voyagers. But without any further ado, before he gets antsy and uh, antsy... Uh, hold, on hold. Stephen Alaric, are you there? Hey, Deb, I'm here. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. You're, all is great. All, How about you? Uh, all is great. How was the earthquake this morning? Did you enjoy that? <laughs> I thought the I thought the structure around me was going to crumble and crush me. <laughs> I don't think so. It felt like it for a second, though. I got to tell you, like it was like you know what I found odd was that it it started with a bang. It's like it went boom. The, the whole you know place started to shake. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, because you know I'm yeah. I was. Let me, are, are, am I? Are you? Am what? I? Yes. Wait, hold on. Let me try this and see if it's any better. You sound fine. I, I hear myself echoing, so I'm trying to see if I can find somewhere better to go. Hold on. Are you on a cell phone? Are you on a cell phone? See now, now I'm echoing. You need to follow directions. Are we there? Follow directions. Now I'm echoing with you. Weird. Okay, hold on. Don't you love it live, folks? And he's going to direct a film. Just, no. just <laughs> keep okay, this in mind. It. What are you doing? Walk. Okay, how's this? Well, you okay? You sound fine here. Talk some more. Okay, check, check, one, two. Yeah, you sound fine on our end. Pam's in there laughing and nodding at the same time. <laughs> okay. And I'm sure, and Marie is listening, so I'm sure Marie is shaking her head in disbelief, going, oh, my God, I'm working with this man on a film. Yes, exactly, this, this crazy fool who, oh. can't, <laughs> who can't get good reception. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but yeah, that was a fun earthquake this morning. Did you feel that the two that were a half hour earlier? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I did too. And uh, I posted on Facebook, you know, was that a quake? Because I wasn't quite sure, you know, who knows what my neighbors was, are doing. So um, it was a 3.9 or something, right? Well, the one it, at 444 was a 4.0. There was about oh, a half yeah. an hour earlier, at like 418, 419, there was uh, a 3.0 and a 2.5. And I felt one of those. I was, uh, I was already up. I was screening a film. So I was on the couch screening a film, so I felt all of them. Um, that's not how I wanted to start my day. Uh, no, it's scary. 
just, of course, the way, I, the way I'm looking at it is, you know, this week is the anniversary of my father's passing and of my beloved Yoda's passing. So it's like, all right, I haven't forgotten you guys. You don't have to remind me with an earthquake <laughs> what the week is. <laughs> but oh, we are here well, today to talk about your very exciting new project. Yeah, variants. Yes. So now, now tell everybody what is Variant? What is this short film about? I know what it's so, about. Uh, the but... plot of it. Yeah, I know you know, <laughs> but uh, it's about a uh, young boy. He's he's six years old. He's mixed race, and he's completely infatuated with Batman. But he uh, he has a racial awakening when he's kind of forced to realize that he doesn't look like his favorite hero. So the story has to do with the importance of representation. Uh, and, you know, as, as you already know, you know, the story uh, deals with, you know, the role of family and all of that. And honestly, just resilience. That's all you have to say about it. That, that's, that's it. That's no, you know what? <laughs> what's, what's really funny is because, like, if the sound is perfect for you. And all I keep hearing is myself echo. <laughs> so I'm like, it's kind of, it's kind of like for someone with a little slight ADD, it's kind of driving me a little crazy. But um, but that's okay. I'll deal with it. No, that's not all I have to say about it. It's um, it's fully based off of, you know, it, it's taken from. I shouldn't say fully based. It's taken from my own personal experience as a child. You know, um, first off, I. I still am infatuated with Batman. <laughs> it's how my I know. It's how my mom got me to, yeah, exactly. It's, you know, my mom got me to eat the food I didn't want to eat and all that kind of stuff. That's, it was always tied to Batman. Well, you want to be big and strong like Batman, then you have to eat your broccoli. Batman eats his broccoli. And, you know, when you're a child, like, that, that logic that logic. Okay, I hate, I hate to say <laughs> this, but I think we can safely say that, no, Batman does not eat broccoli. I beg to differ. I think he does. Okay. All right. <laughs> you don't get those kind of muscles, you know, without <laughs> eating your vegetables. <laughs> and, and Popeye has cornered the spinach market. So, all right. So all right. That's right. All right. We'll, we'll let Batman have his broccoli. But, uh, Batman has his broccoli. But, um, you know, I had, a, I had an experience when I was, when I was about, yeah, I guess it was about six when I realized that I was different, you know, that I looked different than everybody else. Uh, you know, I grew up in Toronto and it was a very, you know, there weren't a lot of ethnic families there. And my family is very ethnic. You know, my dad by race is Chinese, but you know, uh, he, he was born and raised in Jamaica. So he sounds like a rascal, but looks fully Chinese. And my mom is mixed race. And so I didn't realize anything was different until a uh, child, uh, an older kid at my school, uh, you know, gave me a nickname that was not very much a nickname. He called me his little N-word. Oh. And um, clearly, clearly he didn't use that. He, he, he was more direct and blunt. But what happened was he came to me and he said, hey, do you know what that word means? And I was like, no. He goes, well, it means special friend. So from now on, you're my little N, okay? And I, you know, I didn't know any better. So I thought, oh, my gosh, this older kid has taken... Uh, you know, and interested me. This is amazing. And for weeks, this kid would just yell that out to me and I'd and wave to me and I'd wave back and he'd laugh. And I didn't really understand why he was laughing. 
And one day the family was driving by and I saw the kid walking on the street and I was breaking my neck to try and wave to the kids. So mom was like, well, who is that? I said, oh, mom, he's my special friend. He's the one that calls me little. Uh. And, uh, and then that was, you know, the whole car almost blew up. You know, my dad was like, what? And my mom freaked out and they were like, you didn't do anything wrong, but don't ever let anybody call you that. But, but what it did for me was it, that was the moment that I realized, you know, like I said, that I'm, I'm different and that people are going to see me as different. And I feel like, you know, it happening at that age when you're six years old to realize that you kind of, you know, at least by this person, you're looked at as less than because, because of how you look. It was, it was a huge kind of awakening. So I think the story, in a more mild way than that, addresses that kind of awakening that so many of us who are different in all kinds of different ways, whether it's race or gender or lifestyle or what have you, um, that we all kind of have that kind of awakening. And so this is sort of, like I said, it's not quite as harsh <laughs> an awakening for, for the character in the film, but, but it's, it's based on, on that. And I wanted to be able to use that as a way to unify us you know, as, as we go through what's going through right, uh, the world, what's going on in the world right now. When did you write this one? Was it during the pandemic? Was it during the past year with the lockdown and with the explosion of all of the Black Lives Matter and all the protests and, and all of that? What prompted the script at this point of your, of your life? I actually, I wrote it, I wrote it before, to be honest with you, I think it was when the prior administration came in and they were showing a lot of signs of of this kind of thing happening and i had a friend over and he was he was remi- he was telling me this story about how his son there was a period where his son would not take off his spider-man costume and it reminded me of of me as a kid so that kind of kick-started everything and 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 so it's probably been about i want to say two or three years ago i wrote wow. that because, you know, and it's funny, as you mention it, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, Daddy Daycare, the Eddie Murphy movie, and the little kid that will only wear his Flash costume. That's all, right. that's all he'll do is wear his Flash costume. And then one day when he finally has confidence and he's been playing with, seeing other kids and playing with them, um, all of a sudden they think he's gone. They can't find him because they find the Flash costume on the floor and they think this kid's running around <laughs> naked somewhere. Uh, but it that all had to do with you know mixing in and bullying and, and all and that yeah. whole discussion. So we see this pop up every so often within the confines yeah. and constructs of film and television. But the timing of your film in right now is more impactful, I think. And plus, you know, the more predominant superhero of batman everybody might not know flash the flash but they know batman right right and i think i think you know honestly a lot of this was just kind of circumstances lining up you know like uh again you know this came from you know the start of the other administration which again was showing signs of (laughs) of of you know uh helping to create and flame racial tension so it did come out of that, but I mean, you know, you're right. The fact that I love Batman is kind of coincidental because you're right. I think that like that's something much more recognizable, and I think it will have a bigger impact. You know, people were um, asking me, oh, you know, you could you could kind of 
make up a character, a superhero character, and, and do it that way. And I, I heard that argument, but I, I felt like it was counterproductive for the exact reason you just said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want, to, you want that recognizable touchstone that crosses right. it, because it's like no matter what age demo that you're in, um, Batman's been around for so long from, you know, 90-year-old grandparents down to four-year-old kids. They know who Batman is. Exactly. You know, very identifiable and recognizable on every platform from comics to coloring books to TV. Of course, the best Batman is still Adam West, but we, I digress. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, I, I, I don't know. If, I don't know if there's a best, but okay, I'll give you that. Um, was it all? Now you're also going to be directing this. Was it always yeah. your intention to use this vehicle for you to direct? No. Um, to be honest with you, I just wrote this because it was in my heart to write. Mm-hmm. And then, um, as I as I saw it, and I could really see that there was a chance to have an impact with it then it started to roll forward. And even then, I, I, you know, uh, I wasn't sure that I wanted to direct it. I, I, it's a learning curve, just like with anything else. You know, I, I've been in front of the camera, but to be behind and to understand the language of the camera um, and how to, how to convey certain things using the camera and lighting and, uh, you know, uh, uh, production to be able to do that is, is a learning curve. But I think the uh, general consensus with, the rest of the team was because of my own personal tie to it that I was kind of probably the best person to, 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 to helm it. So, you know, it's why I'm trying to surround myself with all kinds of people who know way more than I do. <laughs> so I can pull from them and then, you know, and, and fulfill my duties as a director as competently as I can. But I think, you know, again, the, the idea behind it was, my personal tie and, and the depth that I, I feel with this, that it's kind of my story to tell. So that's where we're going for that. That's why, that's why I stepped into that role. Well, I think it's a smart move. And I think starting out for, for you as you're making this segue um, from in front of the camera to behind the camera, uh, I think this is, this is a smart way to do it for you progressing. Yeah. Uh, and as you said, you've got a lot of experience in different genres in front of the camera and on stage because let's all not forget Steve was Simba in The Lion King. <laughs> that, that Come on, this is a very important thing on your resume. Yeah, no, of course, it's significant. And there's no, there's no experience like it. I was saying that to someone the other day. I was like, I'm stepping on stage on Broadway, there's, there's no energy that will ever compare to that in my mind. Yeah, well, way do you pick up the camera and start directing a film? Oh, maybe, well, we'll see. Maybe you're going to be right. Am I ever wrong? (laughs) Hardly. I'll give you that. Hardly. (laughs) So you're, right now, Variant is at a very critical stage. You're in the raising money stage. That's right. So explain this, how people can get in on this very timely and topical project. Okay, first off, thank you for bringing it up. (laughs) Secondly, um, before I even say that, what I want to say about it is that uh, 
I'm not always, um, I, I don't know how I feel about art uh, and commerce and where they blend, but I know that here uh, we have a specific cause. I don't feel that people are necessarily backing our film per se as much as they are backing a movement that this film is going to help, you know, uh, bring light to, which is representation. So, um, so we've been really fortunate so far. We're just about at our tier three goal. We're trying to get to tier four. So you can find us on Indiegogo. You can search Variant Film. Um, also, if if you're good and you can remember all these letters, it's igg.me slash at slash Variant Film. And that, that'll lead you directly to our page. Or just just Google Indiegogo and it'll take you there right. and then type in Variant Film. That's easier. That's right. For old people like me, that's much easier. <laughs> and he agrees with me, Pam. He agreed with me. Old people like me. Great. Well, I didn't say Thanks. that. I laughed. I laughed kindly. <laughs> so now, what What are the tiers? Because you, you met the first tier, and you're, what, $239 or something away from completing the second tier? Uh, the third tier, actually, we're $114 now because we had some more donations. But um, basically, you know, we, we wanted to, the, the most important thing was to make the film. And then we kind of decided, look, here are some different kind of goals that we can try to hit in order to do more and more and more. Our initial goal was sort of the minimum to do justice to the film. But what that also meant was we would have to beg beg and borrow and steal and the thing that i really really wanted to do with this especially considering the message is to hire people from under underrepresented communities and pay them so a lot of what you know the other tiers are about it's about improving our p camera packages our lighting packages it's about um not just the craft of it but also involving people from the community that this film is meant to represent and not having to ask them to do things for free. Mm -hmm. That was a big part of our mandate when we started this film. So that's what we're really, you know, trying to do with the, with the higher tier uh, goals. Okay, but what you're, what you're also doing, because I don't want people to think that you're just going to hire people off the street just because they fall into a demographic. You're, you're going to be using oh, no, trained, trained people trained people <laughs> in course. the different disciplines of filmmaking um correct That's so right. it's not it's not like you're going to home depot and you're picking up who's sitting on the curb out front um no that's correct like our our uh cinematographer beth napoli she's well female um she's amazing she's done all kinds of stuff you can google her and see her reel our uh, composer, Sean Chasen, has been working in film and TV. He's also, you know, he's also from underrepresented communities. So, uh, you know, this is, you're 100% you're correct. Like, it's people who have already been working in the industry or who, um, uh, uh, you know, but, uh, come from underrepresented communities that can add to our project with their talents aside. Like, it's not just about their, uh, the community they're in. <laughs> In other, wor in other words, also. this film is championing, championing diversity at every level. 100%. That's, that's right. That's the easy way. Instead of underrepresented communities, this is all about diversity and bringing yes. in everybody. 
bringing in inclusion, inclusion, yeah. inclusion and diversity, yeah. bringing in everybody. Um, that's right. But yes, but I don't, you know, that's so important because you, as you well know, there's so many campaigns for movies where, okay, yes, they want, they want people to get in on the ground floor, get some perks, things like that for donating to the film project. But then they're not using anybody with any skill. Right. And it shows um, you know, at that, the end. That is, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're right. You know, I was looking at some of the uh, fan films for Batman, you know, uh, just kind of looking around and searching and stuff. And, and the, the difference in, you know, quality of film is, it's, it's like, it, it's huge between, you know, <laughs> you have some really incredible films and some that, you know, um, you know, could, could have, could have benefited from some more, uh, uh, skill in certain areas, you know what I mean? So it, uh, we want to, especially again, with the message, we want to make sure that we're, we're in the higher echelon, not the lower. <laughs> so when do you anticipate starting production on variant? So our hope is to start production in June or July. So okay. we have t uh, 11, 10 days left on our um, campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, once, we ha once we have those funds, we'll launch into pre-production. Um, and so we figure June, July should be a good time to start. And by then, COVID should be more under control. More vaccines should be out there. And of course, you are going to adhere to the to the white sheet to the pro the filmmaking protocols uh in in the time 100%. of covid That's, you know i think yes it, absolutely yeah That's like, yeah, yeah Sorry, people at this point at this stage of the game everybody needs to know that yes with indie films the indie filmmakers are being held to a standard as stringent as you know tom cruise as you know as yeah. stringent as jurassic world um, so, you know, and it, this is something now that filmmaker, indie filmmakers have had to accommodate in their budgeting because it is a huge expense to filmmakers. Yeah, that's also, yeah, a hundred percent. That's also on our page. Like we, we talk about PPE and, and the importance of doing all of that. And you're right. Like we're held to the same standard as any huge production. The difference is, is the huger productions have insurance and money behind them so that if they miss a day they can more easily kind of maneuver right but with us you know if it's a, if it's a two weekend shoot you know <laughs> you know something where do you go you yeah one weekend where it was, that's that's yeah that's death for us so yeah so it's important that we do all of that you're right well unfortunately my friend i must bid you adieu so that I can welcome in my next guest, calling from Canada of all places, I think. Oh, uh, very cool. But everybody, they can get on board. Some really cool perks available. Indiegogo. Yeah. Variant film. $5, $10, every little bit helps. And Deb, thank you so much for giving us uh, giving us a platform. We appreciate you and love you to death. Thank you so so much. I know, and you like my money too. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> that too. <laughs> well, you will be back on the show as you get into production for an update. Absolutely. All We'd right. 
I will see you soon. Love you. See you. Okay, much love to you. See you soon. Love you too. Bye. All right, bye. And that was Stephen Alaric talking about variant film. Go to Indiegogo, $5, $10. Throw something in the pot. It's timely. It's topical. Steve is a fabulous guy. He is an excellent writer. He's got Marie Noel is one of the producers on the film, a co-producer. Marie has quite a bit under her belt and is very good at uh, time management and money management. So we will follow up with Steve and Marie at a later date. And right now, I'm very excited to welcome Jesse Noah Klein to the show. Hi. Hi, how's it going? It is going. Welcome. Uh, Thanks very much. Like a house on fire. What a beautiful film. Thanks uh, very much. Thanks. This I didn't know what to expect with the film. And uh, I actually watched it for the second time this morning during the earthquakes. Um, <laughs> seriously, I was <laughs> I was watching this again this mor- for the second time this morning when the earthquake started. Um, so, but uh, this is it's it's a very reflective, um, almost contemplative film. I'm seeing in you in your design, in your visual design, in your structure. Um, and the construct of the film itself, I'm I'm picking up notes of Terrence Malick, and it's beautiful. Thanks very much. Yeah, uh, that's a filmmaker I, I admire a great deal. You know, where did this this it the story itself is simple. We have a woman who named Dara who has been gone for a number of years and suddenly she comes home but what does she come home to we there's mm-hmm. a, a husband there's a daughter who's now turning 4 there's her father um and nobody is really that excited to see her and <laughs> yeah. and that's a good portion of it's that mystery and you you give us breadcrumbs, and a lot of it you also leave open to our own interpretation as to all of the circumstances and what exactly happened um, to Dara. Um, it's you know you get the impression you get the impression that okay she was suffering from postpartum depression after the birth of her daughter Isabel, but what I love is you never specifically point that out you leave it open for the audience to draw their own conclusions because so much of what happened to Dara happens in so many different types of instances so many different triggers so many illnesses Um, so you really leave that open for us for people to attach to or find as their own touchstone and it's so delicate the way you do that Uh, yeah, it was, it was important for me not to be all that explicit about it in the sense that it's Dara's past, which is kind of, you know, always looming that these ghosts from her past, mainly her mother. And so kind of, uh, yeah, I, I, it's somewhat of a tightrope that we walk in the film mm-hmm. and that Sarah walks uh, in her performance where it's, it isn't explicitly stated. You're absolutely right. 
but it's always, you know, looming over Dara in the presence of, of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Where did the idea for this story arise? Well, you know, one of the things is that I, I myself was moving back. I, I lived in the United States for six years, uh, and I was moving back to Montreal, to, frankly, to develop this project. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was one element of it. But, you know, for this project in particular, it was the character that was really the genesis. And, you know, I think is really at the heart of the film is Dara. And I had a pretty clear sense of who she was and what I wanted to explore with her. And it's the narrative that kind of was built out of her experience rather than vice versa. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the story that was imposed on characters it was a story that was born of a character mm-hmm. and we and you keep us with that character and while the film is very ob- observational it's very observational from her point of view and so much of the film is her in moments of quiet and contemplation and or confusion trying to figure out who she is, where she is, and where is this world she thought she was coming back to? And I find it interesting that, that, you know, you were going through your own moving process. And I think everybody can relate to that um, Mm -hmm. in terms of everybody who moves away from home and and then they go back home. And Mm -hmm. it's not what it was before. Um, and here you've got added layers uh, thrown in there, but it's very connective. It's very resonant. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I, did, I do feel that you know the way that the story's told there. You know, I think it's really there's always the universality in the specific, and so mm-hmm. you know, Sarah and I were extremely specific about where she was in those two years and what you know what she's coming back to 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 the letter um but no absolutely you know this idea that our our past kind of looms over us and that we have these ghosts that we can't exactly shed uh yeah it's it's central to to sarah to dara's story rather and yeah i I think we all we all can connect to that now how did you go about taking this from because there is a lot of there's a lot of unspoken moments. So you rely on your visuals very heavily um, in many segments of this film. So I'm curious about your work with your cinematographer, with Ariel Matho Belmar, um, in developing your visual tonal bandwidth and your visual influences. Because I have to say, the camera work, the lighting, the lensing, the use of sun flares, um, the judicious use of uh, extreme close-ups um, that really mm. almost put us in Dara's mind. Really just so well done. So I'm curious about how the two of you, your collaboration in coming up, developing this visual, emotional tone. You know, it's, it's such a first-person film, Um as I, it's, you know, similarly to how the script was developed, the way that I and then later I and Ariel really kind of approached it and talked about it and, and strategized about how, how do we tell the story is how do we convey what Dara is feeling? 
And so, you know, for the most part, it's definitely a film that's extremely intimate, uh, kind of unadorned, but mm-hmm. we're very close to her for much of the film. And I really felt that that was, you know, uh, a simple and elegant, but just, you know, truthful way of, of telling her story of, you know, having this kind of intimacy. The audience has a, a real closeness to to Dara throughout the story. And so that's really kind of how we approached it and started is with an unadorned and uh, just quite frankly simple, simple handheld camera where we're spending much of the film close to her and experiencing the world as she does. Oh, you know, and the visuals that Ariel captures are stunning. The sun flares speak volumes and really lead you in into, you know, down the path of, you know, the imagined world, the beauty that Dara see, was seeing in her mind. Um, mm-hmm. It just adds that that delicacy. And on the other hand, also the fragility that Dara of Dara's still emotional state. Um, there is mm-hmm. a, de- a definite fragility there, and we really see that um, as we get into the third, just coming into the third act of the film with that climactic, the birthday party and kitchen scene. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> um, and this is where your casting of Sarah Sutherland really, I mean, she just explodes having seen such pensiveness and, and quietness from her for most of the film leading up to this point, and then to see what happens, uh, kudos, kudos. Thanks very much. Thank you. That was casting Sarah. What led you to Sarah? Now, granted, we know it's in her genes. It's genetic. She's, she's bound to be good um, <laughs> with Kiefer as a dad and Donald as her grandfather. Um, but what led you? What what told you she was the right one to be Dara? Well, what, one of the things that started is I, I was a huge fan of the show Veep, um, and she was on it for seven seasons. Yeah. And, you know, at times an actress or an actor in such a position might want to change a pace, might want to kind of, you know, stretch their legs and challenge themselves in a different way uh, as an actor. And, you know, I think the timing was just, really lucky for both of us that we were able to find one another and then we just started talking you know Sarah read the script and and she responded to it and you know then our our conversations just evolved over time and we began to slowly build the character together so you know like you kind of take it as far as you can as a screenwriter and then you take it as far as you can as a director and then you really just have to give it over to the actor and let them make it their own and so you know it's it definitely started with just conversations and I could tell that she had a, a deep understanding and a real sensitivity for the character and, and we, we connected right away. Mm-hmm. And then you build around her. Interesting is casting Jared Abrahamson as Dan, as husband, ex soon to be ex-husband, um, mm. whatever we're going to call Dan <laughs> in Dan's, <laughs> in Dan's eyes, um, you know, very interesting contrast between the two and it, it what I love about it is you never feel that they are connected which bodes mm. very well for this story and for Dara 
and how she's feeling and what we're seeing. But, you know, I, I love seeing the two of them because it, it's like taking Brillo to a piece of fine china. <laughs> um, you know, I, I was really impressed with that casting, bringing Jared in to play opposite Sarah. But then, come on, you, you got the scene stealer of all, of all time. Little Margot Villancourt as young little the young little daughter Isabel. Where did you find her? Every time she's on screen, she steals a scene. You know that, don't you, Jesse? <laughs> well, yeah, it was you know it was a pleasure working with her. It's certainly challenging because you know with the story, one of the central elements that we find out you know right at the beginning of the film is that her daughter doesn't remember her. And so for that to be believable, I really needed to cast a, a young girl who actually was that age. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we auditioned tons of people or tons of kids and, you know, anything above that age, I, I just felt it wasn't credible. Mm-hmm. And so Margot comes in one day. And, I mean, the scene that's around halfway through the film when she's imagining something with her mom, mm-hmm. she just nails the scene. So she, you know, she basically walked in off the street and a four-year-old had, you know, two pages of dialogue in her head and I was just floored by it. So it certainly was challenging, you know, um, working with someone that young, the advantage is there's no tricks. Like there's no pretense. She's a hundred percent natural all the time. And yeah, it's certainly just challenging because she's four. <laughs> so you, know, you have to be very patient and really kind of craft everything around her. The other actors were extremely patient and very generous as well, because, you know, we really kind of had to, create the scenes for her to feel comfortable. Mm. And it's not just, it's not just Margot that you have. You have lots of little kids in this film. You've got playground scenes. You've got the birthday party scene. You're working with a lot of very young children here. Sure. Yeah, it was, um, you know, you, you do have definitely some help and I'll say that, for Margot, we had, we had an acting coach. So it was really kind of myself and the acting coach at all times in tandem who's responsible for the directing of the kid there. You know, she was absolutely invaluable and, and did a great job. Uh, but no, you're right. It's, it's, you know, it's challenging, you know, for sure. But it was really integral to the story and, you know, their faces and their emotion. I mean, Margot's most of all. It really kind of, you know, elevates the story and makes it feel, you know, uh, heartfelt and yeah yeah no I mean just seeing all of their little faces especially at the birthday party where they're getting face painting the authenticity and the purity that comes through in all these kids is fabulous and the fact that you have that scene and you do it the birthday party scene and you really have the bulk of it as a montage is just so mm-hmm. beautifully done, and kudos, and you know, Richard is your editor. I, I'm a <laughs> yeah. huge admirer of Richard's work, going all the, going back to an American Haunting, which starred Donald Sutherland, but also mm. Denny Villanueva's Maelstrom and War Witch is just mm-hmm. fabulous. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not surprised by what I'm seeing with montages and with edits, knowing Richard's work. Um, but it's like that birthday party montage that just nails the entire world of a child so perfectly. 
So. Yeah, thank you. It was it was a pleasure to work with him. And yeah, he definitely, you know, he just brings so much expertise and experience. And it was just a pleasure, like, to kind of, you know, come into post-production. And one of the ways that he works is we just, you know, at the beginning of the process, we just watched all the footage and just talked it through. And then I kind of give him a bit of space to do his thing before coming back and beginning to collaborate on it together. So, yeah, and, you know, I can only be so lucky uh, to be able to work with him again. So, how, yeah, it was great. How difficult was it to find the ebb and flow, to find the pacing of Like a House on Fire? It's definitely, you know, the expression, there's the film you write, the one you shoot, and the one you edit, I, I think holds true for, I mean, all the films that I've made, and I think that you know, there's a lot of truth to it. So, you know, there's just a huge amount of collaboration at all stages of the project, and editing the film was no different. So, you know, Richard and I were in the room together, and we were working things out, and testing the film for, you know, the producers and other, you know, somewhat small groups of people. And, you know, you just have to listen. It's all about, like I said, it's just really all about collaboration and finding kind of the balance that the footage speaks back to you and letting the story breathe, but also, you know, not having it be too long. You know, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't want it to really be uh, one extra frame. Yeah, and this this is very tight. This comes in at what eighty four, eighty six minutes, something like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very tight. Um, you really you really keep it concise. There's nothing extraneous in here. Uh, it definitely it doesn't drag on. You know, so many films I've seen of late, it's like it ends. Well, you think it ends, and <laughs> then another scene comes, and then you think, okay, it's over. Um, I, I saw a film just the other week. I screened it, and it had six false false endings. And I'm like, "Oh, shoot me now!" <laughs> yeah. But this for, for this. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say. I was just gonna say that you know, for this film especially, you know, there's there's a few small things towards the end that need to be resolved. But no, I couldn't agree more that you know once. Sarah's kind of, you know, taking the steps that she can and, you know, uh, made the peace that she can find. You know, yeah, I definitely think uh, a film shouldn't overstay as welcome. Yeah. Um, and this one definitely does not. You know, and because of the, the quietness of this film, uh, the many moments of contemplation or reflection or confusion, um, your score and your sound design are so key in going hand-in-hand with your visuals. Your score here, the music in this film, is beautiful. It is beautiful. What were you looking for with your composer in terms of the emotional, the musical emotional beats here? Yeah, that's a really interesting collaboration to partake. Because, you know, editing or cinematography is, this is a director you have some language that mm-hmm. you can kind of convey to, you know, help your collaborators along with, with a composer. If you're not a musician yourself, which I'm not, it's a whole other language, which you don't speak. Um, but yeah, working with Christophe was wonderful. And, you know, it was definitely, uh, 
real work, like real collaboration. It took us many weeks or months to kind of get at it together. But ultimately, at the end, we were both, you know, really happy with the work. And I, I'm thrilled with what he did and would love to work with him again. And so, yeah, it's definitely, the, it takes a bit of time and a bit of experimentation. And you just have to let the material speak to you and then let that guide the music that, that comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it is. The scoring is so beautiful, really, really beautiful uh, in the film. I was very, I was very moved and very impressed by it as I was watching and listening. You know, I'm, I'm thanks very much. You know, what did you, as a filmmaker, you know? Well, I do have to say before I forget, thank you, thank you, thank you for bringing Sheila McCarthy in. Uh, I love seeing her turn up in anything. Um, she has been a joy to see as a character actor for decades. And the diversity of what she brings to, with the, the diverse roles and then the performance and the little bits, the nuance that she imbues within those performances. And she does exactly that here. Um, beautiful. I was so happy to see her pop up on screen. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, but I'm curious for you as a filmmaker, Jesse, what did you take away? What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker making a film, making this film like A House on Fire um, that has the emotionality and the construct that you have here? Uh, I mean, you just learn so much making a film at every stage. So, you know, I, I guess the there's all the things, of course, I'll take with me as I move forward. But, yeah, you know, it's just this, these stories and this one in particular just means a great deal to me. And ultimately what I feel it addresses is how difficult and how damaging it can be to be in a family but how ultimately the hardship is, is worth it. And that, you know, I, that's something I do. I do think we can all connect to and Dara's realization is, is my own. And I think all of our own that ultimately that hardship is worth it. And so, you know, on an emotional level that that's what I took from it is that, you know, through, through collaboration that was done on the film, but also just in our lives that we can, Ultimately, you know, Dara doesn't perhaps get what she wants, but she gets she gets what she needs uh, at the end of the film. And I think fighting for that is is important. Mm. You know, was this finished before the world went into lockdown for COVID, um, or were you working on this during during the pandemic? Uh, you know, we finished it the week before. But <laughs> it's a, that's why it's it's an easy date to remember. Yeah, we at least in Montreal much of uh, at least North America. We went into lockdown here in Montreal on March 13th, 2020. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy to remember. We finished it the <laughs> Friday before on March 6th. Um, so, you know, it's been, it's been a road getting it to here now a year later. And the film played a tiff in the fall, but under kind of, you know, their, their kind of smaller pandemic circumstances. Mm -hmm. So we were still thrilled to, you know, be selected and be included in their program. And here we are. Now, when you say finished, was it finished, finished, or was principal finished, and you were doing editing and some post 
during lockdown? The, the, the truth of it is finished, like literally that, that last Friday. Wow. We, you know, the producers and I were watching the credits. Wow. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've talked to a lot of directors. Like, oh, yeah, we finished the week before. Or some have said, you know, yeah, they, they shut down. We were, we were in post in editing and they shut us down and threw us off the lot. Um, no, mm. you you got to finish, finish. Oh, my. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. That's 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 incredible, actually, under the circumstances of the world. That's incredible. Um, yeah, it's very challenging for all industries, uh, but certainly for film. I mean, it's just the producers and I would look at some of the behind the scenes still from the shoot from the summer before. And I mean, you know, we're packed 30 people into a small room. So, you know, just that whole culture just changed radically overnight. Now, is there anything new that you're working on? Have you been using lockdown time to work on another project, write another script? Uh, I am actually. Yeah. Uh, I do have a new script and you know, I, the, the emotional honesty that I try to imbue my characters with is always something that I try to bring with me and I plan to bring with me for my next project. Although this one is somewhat of a departure. Uh, it's a little more in genre territory. It's a little bit more atmospheric and uh, it's centered around a ghost story. <gasps> I love ghost stories. <laughs> I love well, ghost stories. You know, to put it one way, you know, I, I find that Dara's, Dara's story is a ghost story mm -hmm. because her mother is this ghost that's kind of, you know, pervaded her life. Whereas, yeah, I am referring to it now in somewhat more, somewhat more literally. Um, but yeah, in other words, I do think thematically I'm always, I've always been exploring that in my work. Mm -hmm. And so this time I'm just kind of pushing it a bit more atmospherically in, into genre territory. Oh, nice. Oh, well, I will be on the lookout for that one. <laughs> Uh, Thanks but, very much. But right now, everybody can see Like a House on Fire. It is out and about. Everybody, you can find it. Um, is, it is it in theaters now? It was in theaters here. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, it's now, you know, it's on VOD. Yeah. Uh, I, in the United States, on iTunes and Amazon and Vimeo. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think that this one was, was theatrical here in the States, especially since theaters are just now finally in the markets where this would really play, New York mm. and Los Angeles. L.A. theaters just opened a couple weeks ago. Um, now right, they, now right. they can at least increase capacity uh, to 50% starting today. Um, so, okay. so it's a good thing for filmmakers, especially these little indie films like yours, these little glistening gems, um, so that they can actually get some placement in a theater because there is nothing like seeing a film on the big screen. Nothing like it. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Oh, Jesse, thank you so much. This has been a delight having you on the show talking about Like a House on Fire today. I hope you'll come back on the show with your ghost story when Absolutely. you get it done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks very much. Jesse, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. And that was Jesse Noah Klein, writer and director of Like a House on Fire. It is available now, VOD, digitally. So that is all the time we have today. 
Next week, we're going to have filmmaker of the film Vikes is going to be joining us. And we're going to be talking a lot about Voyagers, Neil Berger's new film. Uh, We'll hear some of my exclusive interview with Neil as well as production designer Scott Chambliss, uh, which excites me. And hopefully if we can pull off a Skype later this week with cinematographer Enrique Chidiak, maybe it'll squeeze in some of that too. But that is all the time we have today. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.